Uh, So we're in this series on the life of David, and last week, my wife and I were holed up in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, which was awesome over in the Havasupai area. It was incredible. Trip that we planned long before we came on staff here. Um, And Yvonne did a spectacular job up here, yes? Wow. So make sure you tell her that, and she'll get really embarrassed, and no, no, but... Do that, do that. And in this series on the life of David, we're calling it a journey of the heart. And we're looking at uh, different ways that David, a man after God's own heart, reflects uh, the heart that God looks at when he sees us. And we're really looking at so many pieces of his story. And the first couple of weeks, we looked at the life of David. We looked at, at his heroic, courageous heart. We looked at how he uh, fought Goliath and beat this giant. Very inspiring. Uh, but then you turn the page, and we're going to look at a, a more difficult part of his season that came after that. Uh, and and to kind of do that, you, you think about when David was anointed king, he was a, uh, a boy, really. Uh, he didn't ask for it. He didn't know it was coming. Uh, he was a boy. And can you imagine the dreams you would have for what your life was going to look like if the prophet Samuel came in, anointed you king, and wow, now the sky's the limit from here on out, right? Um, All kids have kind of this beginning where we are wired by God, really, to want something more. Um, We want to grow, we want to flourish, we have great dreams, um, but sometimes those dreams, actually almost always at some point, our dreams get discouraged. And life might sound a little more like this video clip that we're about to watch here, if we were to be honest. When I grow up, I want to file all day. I want to claw my way up to middle management. Be replaced on a whim. I want to have a brown nose. I want to be a yes man. Yes woman. Yes sir. Coming sir. Anything for a raise sir. When I grow up. When I grow up. I want to be underappreciated. Be paid less for doing the same job. I want to be forced into early retirement. I think that's the commercial that launched Monster into its, its amazingness right there. Uh, and, and, and as funny as that clip is, I mean, you, you think about it, what if we did start that young with that kind of discouragement? Boy, uh, our aspirations would be way different than, than they are. And, and honestly, throughout all of our lives, there are some people with such a chronic sense of discouragement in their lives, they just kind of get used to it. Like, they don't even notice it, maybe, but it just leaks out of them. It robs them of life, and it, it drains the life out of the people around them. And, and I heard this story. I, I'm not even, I couldn't even find the original source for it. But, but there's this guy, and this dude here, he has a, a neighbor who's a farmer. And, and that farmer guy is just never impressed by anything, right? He's a very discouraging guy, this farmer is. And so the, the, the guy decides, hey, I'm going to go out and get the world's greatest hunting dog. And so he gets it and he trains it to do these remarkable things just to impress the discouraging neighbor. Like he teaches his dog to, you know, sniff scents from a mile away, to, to point for an hour without moving a muscle. Um, and then he gets it all set and he invites the, har- the farmer to, to come out with him and go hunting. So they go out and the dog does all this amazing stuff that he's been taught to do. But the farmer sees it and doesn't say a word. Finally, they get to a duck blind, and the guy shoots a duck, and it lands in the middle of a pond. 
And so he sends his dog, and the dog actually goes out and walks on water, fetches the duck between his teeth, comes back, drops it at his master's feet, and the farmer looks over at the guy and says, your dog can't swim, can he? (laughs) You know people like that, anybody, right? You can probably think of somebody like that in your life, and and the truth is, maybe you've got a little bit of that in you, and I know I have a little bit of that in me, Um, because it's possible for us as human beings to slide into this chronic low-grade discouragement that doesn't really go away, and then it sucks the life out of us and those around us. John Ortberg, who I've been quoting frequently in this series on the life of David, says it this way. He says, discouragement is like a cancer of the soul, and really who you are The test of character is not so much how we respond when things are going really well. It's how we respond when you're in the valley of discouragement. So this morning, we're going to look at what I think is probably the most discouraging era in the life of David. And so if you want to turn, if you have a Bible with us, we'll have it on the screen otherwise. But if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Samuel 18. And I want to kind of set up the story with the context here, tell you a little bit about what's going on in the timeline of David's life. Uh, In our series, we already saw in the very first week how David had been secretly anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And then he gets a job and he's employed by the current king, Saul, as a musician. Then we see how he defeats Goliath and the army loved him. And then somewhere in the mix there, David and the king's son named Jonathan. Jonathan and he become best friends right after he kills Goliath. Now look at this here in 1 Samuel 18. Whatever King Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander in the army, an appointment that was applauded by the fighting men and officers alike. But something happened when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed Goliath. Women came out from all the towns along the way to celebrate and to cheer for King Saul. And they danced and sang for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He said they credit David with Ten thousands and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, in fact, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave like a madman. David began to play the harp, as he did whenever this happened, but Saul, who had a spear in his hand, suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David jumped aside and escaped, This happened another time too, for Saul was afraid of him, and he was jealous because the Lord had left him and was now with David. Finally, Saul banned him from his presence and appointed him commander over only a thousand men, but David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything that he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. Up until this point in the story, all had been going very well in the life of David. He kills the giant. He becomes a commander in the army. He's successful at that. People wrote songs about him. Everything he touched turned to gold. 
I mean, he was on his way to the palace. He was going to become the king. But then a funny thing happened. One by one, all those wonderful things that had been given to him began to get stripped away. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this in in, in your life, but David did. So let me just run through these things that he lost. First of all, he lost his job. He'd been promoted from, you know, shepherd kid to, to court musician up to warrior. He was the most successful officer in the Israeli army. But then one day, Saul becomes pathologically jealous and threw a spear, and David was gone. So he loses his job. He loses his his income. He loses his security. So he goes from being a warrior to being a fugitive. And he would never serve in Saul's army again. Can you just imagine if that was it? A loss just like that. And some of you, I know, can imagine losses like that. I mean, we don't have spears sitting around in most of our living rooms today. um, But some of you have had other kinds of spears tossed at you by family, by Friends by bosses, even Christian friends, even church people. You've had spears thrown. You, you have an idea what that's like. Next in David's story, he loses his wife. Um, he had married Saul's daughter. Remember, that was a part of the, the prize here. And um, her name was Michael. Um, <clears throat> if you want a really interesting story that I'm not going to tell here, uh, go and look up what the dowry was. Read that story this week and... and it helps me believe the Bible is true. Some of weird things in there, you're like, well, they wouldn't have made that up if it wasn't true. So check, check that one out, right? So he had married Saul's daughter as part of the prize of, of, of winning against Goliath. He even had to go to extra steps to do it. But then one day, Saul sent his soldiers to David's home to kill David. And Michael helped David escape, but then she gets taken away by Saul. And eventually, Saul has her marry somebody else, another man. So now David's lost his job, and he's lost his family. He figures out Saul's not going to calm down and knock it off, so he flees to a town called Ramah where the prophet Samuel, who is his spiritual mentor, that's where Samuel lives. I mean, the prophet Samuel is the one that anointed David as king in the first place. Samuel was the one who had assured David of God's presence in his life. Samuel was the one that God spoke to uh, through to speak to David. He knew that Samuel would, would be a safe person, would be a safe place. But no matter how far David ran, it was not far enough. So Saul hears about David in Ramah and, and sends his soldiers to that town. And David has to make another escape. And Samuel, the prophet, was, was an old man by now. He couldn't go with him. In fact, soon after this, Samuel dies. So David now, he's lost his job. He's lost his family. He loses his mentor, the one who anointed him. So he runs to his best friend. He runs to Jonathan. And Jonathan, the scripture says, loved David more than he loved himself. This is probably the one person that that David knew to the core of his being he could trust with everything. Jonathan even stood up to his own father, King Saul. And King Saul threw a spear at Jonathan, at his own son, to try and kill him. Jonathan risked his life for David, but he could not leave the court. David... Um, knew he had to go, but Jonathan knew he couldn't raise a sword against his own father. So David runs for his life once more, and now he's lost his best friend. We pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, and, and, and look what happens next. It says, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. So now David has lost his country. He's lost his home, and he goes to Gath. And just a sec here, like, anybody remember, like, who came from Gath? A real tall guy built kind of like LeBron, only taller, right? 
Anybody remember who's, yeah, yeah, Goliath, right? This is where Goliath was from. Like David has no place to go but to the Philistines, his mortal enemies. Verse 11 says, but the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in, his, in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on in front of me? I mean, think about that. What a humiliation, right? Here's David, this warrior, the future king, and he's reduced to just drooling, pretending to be out of his mind, acting like a madman just to keep from being killed. And then chapter 22, verse 1, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Think about the the sequence here. He's expecting a palace. Right? He's waiting for the day that he would take the throne. He had wealth, power, beauty, fame, friends, security. He thought was a guaranteed future was right in front of him. And of course, none of this was his idea in the first place, right? This was God's idea. And now it's all gone. Gone, right? No money, no friends, no home, no job, no advisors. He's running for his life. He's expecting a palace, and he ends up in a cave with no explanation of why and no guarantee that it will ever be over. And I was looking at the story of the life of David, and this thought occurred to me. Um, Every one of us, every one of us in this room will log some time in the cave. Guaranteed. There's no escaping it. In fact, I know that some of us, our spiritual journey is driven by trying to avoid the cave, right? Right? But let me make another bold statement. If, 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 if we're trying to live our life in a way to, to avoid all pain, it won't work. It simply won't. Because every one of us will log some time in the cave. See, the cave is where we end up when all of our props and crutches and everything that that we use to try to lean on and hold us up, it it all gets stripped away. See, the cave is where we end up when we thought we're going to do great things for God. We're going to have a great, perfect family, or we're going to boldly go where no one has ever gone before. And suddenly, uh, it's real clear that things aren't working out the way that I had dreamed. And I'm guessing, I know for a fact that that for some of us here this morning, some of us are in a cave right now. And maybe you're in a cave because uh, you've lost a job. Or maybe you're under financial pressure, or, or maybe you're struggling with an addiction, or maybe you're hiding something from someone close to you. For, for some, maybe your dreams. Uh, maybe now or long ago, your dreams of a family life have been shattered. Maybe you've lost a spouse to death or abandonment. Um, maybe you've always dreamed of having a marriage and it hasn't happened. Or maybe you are married, but you're deeply disappointed by it. And for whatever reason, 
Uh, these reasons are many others. Maybe you find yourself in a cave. Maybe you've lost a mentor or never had any kind of mentor to help you navigate your life. Maybe you've lost a close friend. Maybe you're deeply disappointed in a relationship with your parents or someone else. Maybe your cave involves a physical condition that, that, that somebody you love has and they've lost their health, or, or maybe you have. And for some of us, some of us this morning, maybe you're in a cave and you acknowledge, like, I'm in a cave because of bad decisions that I made somewhere along the line and everything's now starting to crash down. Just odds are in this room, there are people that feel alone. Like right here in our family, in this community, maybe you feel like a failure because you've blown it again and again. And for whatever reason, some of us this morning are here and we're resonating with this idea of feeling like we're in a cave. Now, some of you may not be in a cave this morning, but let me be the bearer of some bad news here. Um, you may not, right? You may not be in a cave this morning, but at some point, you will be. Like, nobody plans on landing there, but sooner or later, everybody spends some time in the cave. It's just a part of life. Now, what's hardest for me when I'm in those cave seasons is I start to wonder, has God lost track of me? Has God forgotten his promises? Does he remember where I am? Does he even hear uh, will I ever be anywhere but this stupid cave? Like, am I going to die in this cave? And I remember um, this quote from my pastor back in Minnesota, Dave Johnson. He said this many times about caves. He said, caves are where God does some of his best work. The cave is where God sometimes molds and shapes human lives like no place else. See, sometimes when all the props and crutches and posing in my life gets stripped away and I find that all I have left in this world is God, that's the time where I remember that even if that's all I've got, God really is enough. Yes. He's enough. And all those props that I thought my life was being held up by, managed by, all those props can't support my life. The, the masks that I wear to protect and deflect, the, the posturing, the self-important posing, it all just comes apart. And at some point, God shows up. See, because sometimes of all places in this world, it's not the palace. It's the cave where we meet God. Because God does some of his best work in caves. By the way, that's not a formula like, oh, okay, so if I know that, right, if I remember, if I just remember that God is enough, then I get out of the cave, right, you know? So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out of the cave here. Okay, God, you are enough. And we're like, nope, still here. Right? I mean, because honestly, for you, for me, especially for me, when we are in a cave experience of, of our life, what is our objective, Yes, we just want to get out, right? To get out of the cave as quickly as possible. You know, okay, I'll feel the pain. I'm going to move through it. I'm going to get the heck out of the cave so I can just get back to normal, right? Uh, so I read the right book. I do my devotions every day. I pray more. I fast. I give. I try another book. Anything to get out of the cave as soon as possible. But how many of you have found that it usually doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Because God does some of his best work in caves. 
fact, in David's story here, there's no real clear timeline, but as best can be told from the text, depending on which biblical scholar we read, David spends how long? 10 to 15 years of his life in the wilderness on the run as a fugitive. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Man, I, I tell you, I'm sure from a human perspective, it probably looked like God's promises to him were never going to come true. Like, those were really hard years, those cave years. We're going to spend another week and a couple weeks looking uh, at this some more. But just stop with that, like 10 to 15 years. You know what that tells me? God is never in a hurry as he's shaping our hearts. Never. I just imagine, like, here's David. A fugitive from his own country, his own king trying to kill him, his mentor's dead. The Philistines don't trust him. His best friend is gone. His wife's taken and given to some other guy. Like this cave stuff is is terrible. And like all of us, this stuff happens and I want answers, right? God, where are you? What are you up to? Are you even paying attention? Like lots of questions and honestly, oftentimes mostly silence from his side. But here's what I know from my own story. When everything gets stripped away, everything is gone. When I have given in to fear, (laughs) again, when, when I can't fake it anymore, when I get to the lowest point of my despair, I am now confident that I am left with one thing, God. And and honestly, it doesn't usually feel like he's there. It doesn't feel like it, but I now know that he is. And it doesn't matter why we're in the cave, by the way. It doesn't matter if I'm there because of my sin or someone else's sin against me or because, you know, of the enemy or because in some situations maybe God has disciplined me. Um, In fact, um, most of the time I hear people assume that if they're in a cave or wilderness season, you know, that God did this. God put me here. And I'm like, eh, be careful. Be careful about blaming all that on God. Sometimes. Um, But wherever I'm at, Wherever you are, wherever we are, God has promised us his presence. And in that cave, he will shape our hearts. He will shape our hearts. I was thinking about that this week. Um, The last 12 years of my life, I can spot some cave seasons. I went from a, a church where I knew it was time to go, where I thought I had kind of a guaranteed future of, of what the plan was. Um, went into church planting and cultivating a community, but that felt like a cave season. And right as our church was getting ready to launch, many of you know this story, um, uh, my marriage blew up, ended up getting divorced. um, And through all of that story, and through all of that cave season, here is something that I am even more convinced of after that long, painful cave season. I'm convinced that God's heart for me and for you is good. That even through all of that, he is good. He is a God of redemption and restoration. And his sovereignty means that he takes every mess, every disaster, every broken thing, and he begins shaping it for good. 
Romans 8.28, very familiar verse to some of you. Uh, it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It says, in all things God works. Hear me, please, friends. It doesn't say what some people think it says, that God causes all things to happen. And there's a vast difference here, okay? Uh, God didn't plan or cause my divorce, right? In all things, God works for the good. He didn't cause it. But in trusting him with my heart, I give him permission to begin bringing good out of an absolutely devastating situation. He is at work for my good. And in your pain too. The loss of a job. The loss of your loved one. Of, of your health. Or the sudden death of a family member. Like God doesn't cause evil. God didn't cause it. He didn't plan it. But he won't waste it. He won't waste it. And I know in the face of the words that I just said right there, especially if we're in the middle of pain, if some of us here are in the middle of pain, it's real easy for us to wonder, well, is that even possible? Like, it's super hard to imagine. Like, there's so much loss and pain, so much damage done. You look at your situation like I have and go, what, what could God possibly do to work for good in that mess? Well, he's finding ways to bring redemption and restoration, even if you lost a loved one, or your health, or that marriage is over. He is at work to bring about the good. And so if it's not good yet, it's not the end. See, there's hope for all of us. There is restoration available. There's a God that loves you so deeply that there is nothing you face that he won't begin to work towards good. And when I stand up here and share painful parts of my own story, I do it because I believe that it might bring some hope to some of you who desperately need it as well. And so I stand up here and say to you this morning, don't give up. Your father loves you deeply. He has not abandoned you. And as we cling to him, even in our pain and not understanding, he, he is rescuing us. He is changing us in ways that change the core of who we are into something more beautiful and strong. Five years ago, I asked a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, I was kind of wondering, what, what do I do now? I'd been divorced three years. I'm like, what do I, what do, I do now? Um, and he's a longtime pastor in the valley. And, and back here, back then, this was three years after my marriage fell apart, here's, here's what he told me. Um, and I found these notes this week. This is what he told me to tell you now that I'm back doing what I didn't know if I'd ever do. He said, Doug, three years ago, you were a different man than you are today. And you went through this mess, all of this destruction. He said, Doug, I think you're more beautiful than you were three years ago. I think you're more real than you were three years ago. I think you're more vulnerable than you were three years ago. I think you are more trusted than you were three years ago. And I believe that you are much more enjoyable than you were three years ago. I'm like, <laughs> thank you. I'm not sure what that meant, bro. Thank you. He said, God has transformed your life through hell and through crap that nobody wants. Nobody wants this. You don't ever want to go through this again either. But as an innocent bystander, he said, know that about you. And I absolutely know that you know it, that you are a heck of a father, a better father than you were three years ago, and you are somebody that I trust with me. He said, Doug, God has done magic in you, 
and it's not the same looking strength that you thought you had before. It's more beautiful, more real, more strong. And I needed that, especially that day. And I have hung on to those words. So God walked me through that cave season. And community, by the way, having people with you is crucial. Like you don't do this cave thing solo. And community and people around you to speak the truth to you makes all the difference in the world. And so I want to tell you, as I'm pastoring this church, that with, I just want to tell you with everything in me that you can go through destructive kinds of events and not just come out alive, not just surviving, but you can come out thriving. You can come out growing. You can come out stronger. And, and I walked and sometimes still walk with a limp for a long, long time. But I leaned into this truth that I am loved by my Father with an inexhaustible love. And I know that he will never, ever, ever, ever let me go. And he's always on the lookout to take what the enemy meant for destruction and find a way to bring about the good. Because in the kingdom of God, the story that God is writing, that we are living in, faith, hope, and love, they win. <laughs> Evil does not have the last word. Love wins. And the love of God has changed me, shaped me. I got a long ways to go. But it's made me a better man, a better pastor, a better friend, and now with Heidi, a better husband. But it took a cave. In fact, let me say it this way. I don't believe that God orchestrated that season. It wasn't his plan to have me go through all that stuff to you know, teach me a lesson. So he didn't cause it, but he found a way to work it for my good, for my betterment, for my healing and restoration, to take what the enemy meant for evil and to destroy me, but then God brought good out of it. Yeah. yeah. See, in the cave, when we're in that place, we can. We can give in to despair, to anger, resentment, bitterness. We can blame God. We can blame everybody else. We can resign, resign ourselves to a life of resenting others. Like, we have that capacity, right? We can do that. We can choose that. Or <laughs> there's another way. We can choose to live with the hope that God will find a way to restore and redeem everything. We can lean into that Romans 8, 28 promise that God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, God works for our good. Doesn't cause all things. But in everything, God finds a way to be at work in it, working on it, desiring to move it, to pull it towards something good. So your pain doesn't have to be wasted. But here's the deal. We don't skate through life and never face opposition or trouble. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can pretty much count on it as a guaranteed thing that somewhere along the line, you're going to spend some time in a cave. It's just life. You're going to have some cave-like experiences. And, and let me tell you first-hand knowledge here. Caves don't feel like palaces. There's not a throne in sight. Caves are dark and cold, smelly and harsh. And I'm aware that some of us are in some sort of cave right now, so I just want to say something directly to those of us that are in that place. Listen, friends, if you're in that place, all God's people go where you are. 
All of them, all of us. Everybody logs some time in the cave. But hear this if you are there right now. God has not forgotten you, even though it feels like he has. You have not been abandoned. He knows your name. He knows where you live. But here's the hard reality. He's never in a hurry. Never. For David, it was 10 to 15 years, and in David's story and in our story, God is at work in those cave-like experiences of life that ways, in ways that we may not see, that we don't understand, ways that sometimes even feel like abandonment. And God's way is rarely the quickest way. It's seldom the easiest way. But here's the deal. God shapes souls and makes hearts strong in the cave. That's why on a journey of the heart, we will end up spending some time here and it makes sense of scriptures like James 1, verse 2, where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Tenia, too. That's a big team. And Heidi, will you come? We're going to finish this up in a couple of weeks when I preach. Um, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me as Heidi leads us in reading a psalm out loud. It's a psalm that David wrote while he was on the run, fleeing from Saul in his cave experience. And there will be a part that she reads. She's the reader. And you guys would be the all. So, <laughs> yep. Just making sure we got it. And then after we do a closing song, those of you um, maybe just need somebody to pray with you. We're going to have a team right down up front here that will pray with any of us for any reason. But let's do this reading together before we move into the closing song. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. Psalm 63, and I encourage you to read it this week. And when you do, look at your life. I encourage you to look at your life where you're experiencing some challenges, like where the cave might be hitting you. It could be 
work, it could be a relationship, uh, maybe it's financial, maybe it's really intense, maybe it's kind of simple. But here's a spiritual experiment that I want to encourage us to enter into for the week. Instead of praying about that problem, just like, hey, God, take that away, like, get rid of those circumstances, what if we ask ourselves these questions about what God might be shaping in us? The questions on the screen here. God, where do you want to be at work in me? Maybe in some surprising ways. God, where are you at work in the middle of these cave things? And then, God, how could I partner with you in these circumstances? Not trying to get out of it, but right where I am. So that'll be our journey for the week. Uh, Ryan and the team.